you're watching the state's COVID-19 dashboard, you know things aren't looking good. So not good that leaders of the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services are making an urgent push to increase COVID vaccination rates in our state. And they say support from community medical providers is critical. I'm Jean Fisher Brinkley, Communications Director for the North Carolina Medical Board, and this is MedBoard Matters. Thank you for joining me. On this episode, you're going to hear straight from State Health Director and NCDHHS Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Betsy Tilson, about why it's so important to get vaccination rates up now. I had the opportunity to catch up with Dr. Tilson just last week. She was clear that North Carolina has no time to waste. Dr. Tilson, first off, I just want to thank you for being here with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is just incredibly important information and very, very grateful for the North Carolina Medical Board to be supporting getting the messages out and communicating with our providers. So thank you. Of course. Now, this is not the first time someone from NCDHHS has been on the podcast. Back in January, when the state was still in the early days of the initial rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine, Secretary Cohen was good enough to come on MedBoard Matters and explain how medical professionals could help. Back then, her main request was for our licensees um, and other clinicians to help patients, um, you know, who might have concerns about the vaccine by talking about the importance of getting that protection. Now, DHHS is renewing and maybe even strengthening that request, asking clinicians to help the state reach its goal of getting the maximum possible number of eligible residents vaccinated. I'd like to ask you to begin by explaining the context. Why is NCDHHS asking this now? So there's a couple things that are changing in this landscape right now, especially when it comes to our our providers. So first is, as probably many people know, although we were seeing some decreasing cases over the summer and we thought maybe, maybe we were getting to the back end of this pandemic, we are surging once again more quickly than we've ever been surging in the pandemic, really likely to the emergence of the Delta variants, which is far more transmissible than the prior variants variant, which was far more transmissible than the original variant. So we are seeing surges of cases and another surge of our hospitalization. So we are not through this pandemic yet. We are seeing surges. The other piece is that our vaccination rates statewide are not where they need to be. They are not high enough, and that is allowing then Mm -hmm. this increased viral transmission. And as the viruses move, it also means that the viruses can continue to have variants. And right now, the vaccines are still very, very effective. However, Mm -hmm. the concern is if this virus continues to transmit, continues to vary, then we may be in a place where the vaccines are no longer effective, and none of us want that. So that's one piece is the the context of the viral spread going on in North Carolina. Okay. So it's important to really act now that we have this good tool. It is critical to act now. I am actually worried that our window to control this pandemic is closing quickly because I'm very worried that the variants that come down the pike will not be susceptible to our current vaccines. And that worries me a lot. Gotcha. You know, I I think I saw a national number fairly recently that 67% of Americans who are eligible for vaccination have been vaccinated. Where are we in North Carolina? In North Carolina, our our overall population, 51% of our overall population have had at least one dose. Amongst our adults, 18 and up, 62% of our adults, 18 and up, have had at least one dose. 
So, Dr. Tilson, I mentioned that the state has set a goal of getting the maximum possible number of North Carolinians vaccinated against COVID-19. But is there a more specific target? For example, what percentage of state residents would need to be vaccinated for North Carolina to get that magical state of herd immunity that I've heard about, where community transmission is no longer a serious concern? Yeah, I wish I knew what that magic number was, but boy, because I would love for us to be there. Um, It's it's not really known, but it is most likely to be much, much higher than we are now. And there's two different concepts. One is a high enough vaccination level that we're really suppressing any transmission. Think about polio, mumps, measles, where we really don't see it circulating. You need very high rates of vaccination, probably in the high 90s percent. And especially with this Delta being so transmissible, We're probably going to need like 97% to really suppress it. Our goal is to control it and have it be circulating more like flu, where we're able to live with it. It's it's controlled enough that we can live with, but to truly suppress this magical herd immunity where it's no longer circulating, we're going to need really, really high rates. Okay. Well, these trends are very worrying, and it, it's clear that there's still a lot of work to do. So I I know that our licensees who are listening um, would like to know um, what they can do to help. So um, let's talk about how community providers can help with the state's vaccination efforts. There's a couple things that we're asking providers right now. One, that same message in the beginning. Our providers are trusted healthcare providers. They are the most trusted source of information. And that's what we've always heard it and we're hearing it more and more, especially people who are not vaccinated now, they really wanna get vaccinated and talk to their trusted healthcare providers. So that is critically important for our providers to talk to their patients, answer their questions, make sure they have all of the facts, be that trusted healthcare voice. Um, And we have lots of tools and lots of information to help providers with those conversations. We have all sorts of fact-based vaccine information on our website. We have great provider tools, communication discussion tools based in motivational interviewing. We have lots of ways that we can help providers have that conversation. In addition, in our Medicaid program, we have a new code, a vaccine counseling code, so that providers can actually be paid for that counseling time because we know those people now they're going to need some more time they're going to need counseling there's going to be time spent to talk and that is such a valuable piece that our providers bring us to be compensated so there is a we have a vaccine counseling code that you can build to medicaid that is fantastic. Huh. Um, and that's just for Medicaid then? That is just for Medicaid. Okay. We're piloting it. We've It's been live for about five or six weeks. We've had more than 6,500 claims already. Mm-hmm. And now we're, work, we're talking with our um, private payers to see if they might want to do that as well, because that that vaccine counseling is so high value. So that's okay. one piece for sure that we want our providers to know that they remain. Okay the most trusted healthcare voice. We want them to be doing that and to be valuing that and um, and reimbursing for that. And as I recall, that is very much what Dr. Cohen and I talked about when she was with us in January was that piece about community providers being the most trusted source of information, that people don't just want to hear from a doctor, but they want to hear it from their doctor. What is this vaccine? Why should I get it? risks and benefits. So yes. Okay. 
and we do have again we have lots of tools so that if providers need that tools they need the facts that because the the um, information changes rapidly we have all that and then we're happy to do that so that's Great. the first piece really important second piece is you're right then in the beginning we really were pushing the vaccines out in these much much bigger mass vaccination clinics now really the vaccinations are going to happen in those primary care medical homes in the specialty homes in those trusted medical practices so this is now when having our providers come on board to actually be COVID vaccinated providers. And we've had lots of um, increase in success in that. We have more than 750 of our of our medical providers onboarded in COVID vaccinators. So that is, okay. that is really great. And we have, in the beginning, it was pretty cumbersome. And I, maybe if some of our providers had tried to do it in the beginning, um, it was a little bit more cumbersome. But we have really done a lot of policy changes, a lot of system changes, um, a lot more TA and support to make it a lot easier for our okay. providers to be able to, um, to onboard onto CVMS, to get that TA. Um, we've really made a lot of policy um, changes to make it easier for them. So if they tried before and it seemed hard, try again. We've made a lot of a lot of changes. And the big thing for our providers is that we just want you to have vaccine in your office so that when that patient comes in, when you're talking to them and they say yes, there's the opportunity and you have it there right. sitting on your shelf ready to go when a patient is ready. Um, and there were some more um, logistical barriers with the sub-zero freezer and storage and handling. A lot of those have really eased and got a lot easier. We have lots of that information, but a lot of those logistics have eased. Okay. Um, could you say a little bit more about what specific types, what specialists um, or what types of medical professionals you're most interested in encouraging to sign up to be vaccine providers? You mentioned medical homes, so that makes me think primary care, but could you elaborate a little bit? Yeah, so for sure, any medical provider we're happy with, of course, but those primary care medical homes, our family medicine, our internal medicine, our pediatricians that have that ongoing longitudinal relationship with their patients, our primary care, really, really key. They are very trusted sources. But a lot of our specialists are also have that long-term um, relationship with those patients. So any of our specialists as well would be just fine that have that ongoing relationship. You know, many of our nephrologists, many of our sickle cell providers, many of our cardiologists, many of our OBGYN. They really work as that primary care. So any of our um, providers, okay. especially those that have longstanding relationship with patients, would be great. Great. And I just wanted to pause and say you've mentioned a couple of times the resources that DHHS has developed, and they really are excellent and comprehensive. Um, we will post selected resources, including the vaccine provider toolkit. And I think you've got a one pager that talks about how to get started as a vaccine provider. Uh, we will post those on the MedBoard Matters show page so that people will be able to access them very quickly. That's great. That's great. Yeah. And that um, the vaccine counseling code. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that that's live. So um, we want to make sure we. Yeah. I think that's live. big news. Definitely. Yeah. Because that, that's a real concern. I think it's very sensitive of DHHS to recognize, you know, that is uh, unfortunately a barrier potentially to people having these extended conversations with patients is that, you know, they've, they've got to get in and out in 15 minutes, just like everybody else. And if they're adding on this complicated, sensitive conversation, it, it helps that 
that they can be compensated. So I think that's really yeah. great. Well, and if we say the high value piece of our providers is that trusted relationship, then we should be compensating and paying for what that value is. It is that relationship and that conversation with that patient. Yeah. That's an incredibly high value thing that our providers bring. So we want to be reimbursing for that. Great. Well, I think that's great leadership. Um, okay. It probably goes without saying, but I do want to note that Pretty much anyone who wants to get the COVID vaccine and can get the COVID vaccine has already gotten it. So that means that the physicians and PAs who take up your challenge are going to be attempting to persuade people who may be reluctant for a wide variety of reasons. And I imagine those are not easy conversations to have. So I I wanted to ask if you have any guidance or even specific talking points that might help clinicians have constructive discussions with patients who may have a wide range of sincerely held concerns. I do, but first I'm going to push back on your assumption, if I may. Okay. So we said that about you know, about 62% of our adults have had at least one dose. When we've looked at surveys, there still is a percentage of people that are still undecided or still want to have a vaccine. There's maybe about maybe 15% of people that are that have said no. But there's a delta between that 60% and that about 80% of people who are just not quite sure. So I'm not sure that all those conversations would have to be completely persuading someone who's dead set against it. A lot of people are that, um, I'm just waiting a little bit. I I still have questions. I want a trusted person to talk through my questions. I want to make sure that it's convenient, a place where I can go, that that there aren't barriers. So there is a big chunk of people who just need a little tipping over, a trusted person, an easy, trusted, convenient, and for some people, a confidential place to get the vaccine. Because for some people, um, they don't want other people to know they have gotten the vaccine. Interesting. Getting it in a confidential place, they can do it in private, is a really important piece for some people. Hmm. So I think there's still a lot of people that may be quite easy to vaccinate in the context of a trusted medical home. Okay. Well, that's an excellent point. I I think I I would still include those people in the reluctant slash hesitant, but um, you raise some excellent points that it it may not be that they are truly resistant um, to it. That's another strong point for why community providers, you know, should be vaccine providers because they can offer that confidentiality. If you're going to your family doctor, you might be going there for any number of reasons and people don't have to know that you're going to get your COVID-19 vaccination if that's something that is uh, a concern for you. That's right. Um, But to, to answer your direct question is what are those tips? So, and we, as part of our provider tools, I mentioned, we do have this discussion guide that is rooted in motivational interviewing, right? Mm-hmm. And so okay. really understanding from the patient, what are their concerns? What are their questions? Coming in coming to that conversation with a sense of, of compassion and respect, answering those questions. And we have a lot of really good tips on how to navigate those um, pieces. Other things that we've been hearing from providers is sharing their own personal experience. Maybe a provider themselves was, was a little bit nervous, then they learned more, and then they went ahead and got vaccinated. So sharing their own personal stories. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I would also counsel against doing with learning is there is a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of myths. Making sure people aren't repeating the myths and reinforcing the myths is really important. So just talking about the facts and not repeating that misinformation is really important. Okay. Okay, great. Um, And again, uh, if there are any resources that we can link to, we're happy to put those on our show page so we can get those in in clinicians' hands uh, quickly. 
Now, um, one concern that I have heard raised is that people are concerned that, you know, the vaccine is approved, but under on an emergency basis. So at some point in the future, the COVID vaccination, maybe as soon as the end of this month, uh, according to, to Dr. Anthony Fauci, they will receive full and final approval from the FDA. How soon do you think that this will be? And what are your thoughts about how this might impact vaccine acceptance? Yes, let me answer that in a couple different ways. So one, it, obviously, it is correct that these vaccines are authorized under emergency use authorization. However, I do want to point out that the amount of people and data and safety surveillance as part of the EUA is enormous. So it's not that this EUA reflects not many people, not much research, not much data. Oh, my goodness. So more than 350 million people have received one of these vaccines in North Carolina. We're just about to tip over to 10 million doses just in North Carolina. Wow. So we have a huge amount of experience and the most robust safety surveillance system that has put into place as part of this EUA. So sensitive that we're finding literally the one in the millions, right? Mm -hmm. So we're finding that thrombocytopenic thrombosis, uh, the, the immune, um, you're finding the very rare myocarditis. We're finding the very rare Guillain-Barre. So we are finding the one in the millions because of so many people and this very intense safety surveillance. So I just don't want to equate the EUA status as it's not tested. There's no data. There's no experience. That is Absolutely. not. So right. that is why I, we, I feel very comfortable saying that even under this EUA, we have incredible, credible data on efficacy and safety. So I don't have a, any, any great insight into the FDA more than you. But what I am also hearing is that in September, it may be the full approval for Pfizer, which would be great. And I think for some people, that may be enough to tip them over. I'm not sure what more data we're gonna get in a couple of weeks that would change it. Right. I feel like we've been, the, the federal government, the CDC, the FDA has been incredibly transparent with the data. I don't expect there to be any other data, but I think for some people, it will give them uh, assurance that, okay, right. there's a full approval. But I, I just wanna be sure people are not equating the EUA with a lack of experience, safety data. There is so much um, data currently on these vaccines. Absolutely. Is there anything else that I have not asked about our state's current efforts to increase COVID-19 vaccination that you would like to add? Um, I think, again, just really wanting to reiterate that right now that trusted medical voice is the most important voice. Want to be sure that our providers have all the information they need. So as they're counseling their patients, they know that they have um, everything that need and whatever we can do to support our providers, we stand ready um, to do that. I don't think there's anything more critically important right now than getting our vaccination rates up. And as I said at the beginning of this podcast, I am really really worried that our window to control this pandemic may be closing because although currently our vaccines are effective against these variants, if we don't act now and really work to decrease viral spread, then I can see a future not too far off that our vaccines won't be effective for those circulating variants. And that is really really scary. So there's an incredible sense of urgency um, right now in what we do in our state and our country. Wow. Well, Dr. Tilson, I really greatly appreciate your time and all that you're doing to protect public health in North Carolina. Um, thank you again for taking the time to appear on MedBoard Matters. Well, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate the partnership. Yeah. 
I want to take a little time to elaborate on some of Dr. Tilson's comments about adverse effects associated with the three COVID-19 vaccines. First, some basics for listeners who, like me, are not medical professionals. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration requires vaccine providers to report all serious adverse effects to the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, or VAERS. Furthermore, all cases of COVID-19 that occur after vaccination and result in hospitalization or death must be reported. For good measure, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, encourages vaccine providers to report any clinically significant adverse event, even if it's not clear that it was caused by the vaccine. So, what have we learned from all this reporting? Well, we've learned that serious adverse events don't happen very often at all after COVID-19 vaccination, but there have been three main ones documented. One side effect that received quite a bit of attention is thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome, or TTS. Basically, this is when a person has blood clots and low platelet counts. TTS can cause long-term disability or even death. This side effect is associated specifically with the COVID-19 vaccine developed by Johnson & Johnson. Federal regulators temporarily paused administration of the J&J vaccine this spring until they could better understand the risk of TTS. Inoculation resumed in April after it was determined that the clotting syndrome occurred in about three out of every one million individuals vaccinated. In a Morbidity and Mortality Weekly report released August 10th, the CDC estimated that there have been 26 confirmed cases of TTS associated with COVID-19 vaccination, including four cases that resulted in death. Another side effect associated with the Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine is Guillain-Barre syndrome, a rare neurological disorder that causes pain, numbness, and muscle weakness. In the most severe cases, patients can even become paralyzed. However, most people eventually recover fully from Guillain-Barre. Data suggest that Guillain-Barre, or GBS, develops in about eight out of every one million individuals who receive the J&J COVID vaccine. To date, there have been 61 confirmed cases. The third serious side effect associated with COVID-19 vaccination has been seen in people who received either the Moderna vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine. It's called myocarditis, or inflammation of the heart muscle. This condition can reduce the heart's ability to pump or cause rapid or abnormal heart rhythms. In the most serious cases, blood clots can form and cause heart attack or stroke. Myocarditis developed in 3.5 out of every 1 million individuals inoculated with either the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine. And to date, there have been as many as 43 confirmed cases. As of late July, about 187 million people had been vaccinated with one of the three vaccines. If you add up all the serious side effects I just mentioned, there have been 130 documented cases of serious adverse events. That means just 0.000069% of all individuals who have been vaccinated have experienced a serious side effect. And that is why Dr. Tilson and others say that adverse events are very, very rare indeed. I feel that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention another data point available from the vaccine reporting system. And that is that more than 6,000 deaths have been reported among individuals who have been vaccinated against COVID-19. However, and this is critically important, deaths must be reported even if there is no information to suggest that the vaccine had anything to do with the patient death. 
Someone gets the COVID vaccine and dies in a car crash. It gets reported to VAERS. Someone gets the vaccine and then drowns while swimming. It gets reported. To date, the only deaths that have been confirmed as having been caused by a vaccine are the four deaths associated with the blood clotting syndrome. If you'd like to look at the data yourself, we have posted a link to the MMWR report these numbers came from on the MedBoard Matters show page. You can find it at www.ncmedboard.org forward slash podcast. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of MedBoard Matters. If you feel the information discussed on this episode is useful, I'd like to ask you to share it with your friends and colleagues. If our state is going to be successful at meeting its goal of raising vaccination rates, we're going to need all hands on deck. If you have comments or questions about this podcast, please email them to me at podcast at ncmedboard.org. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again. This podcast is produced by the North Carolina Medical Board. The North Carolina Medical Board exists for the benefit and protection of the people of North Carolina.